1: Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Keeper Cup podcast. I am your host, Chad Young, joined in part, in a way, in a form by Pete Ball. Pete and I had some scheduling conflicts this week, and so we couldn't record together. And rather than subjecting you to 30 minutes of myself rambling at you (laughs) alone, we figured out a way to sort of pseudo do an episode together. And so what you're getting here is you'll get me, you'll get Pete, we are not talking to each other. We're, we're off recording on our own and then editing this together. We're not going to try to fake this into being some kind of a conversation or anything like that. But what you are going to get is analysis from both of us on a set of six different players. And what we wanted to look at was buy lows for keeper leagues. Guys who, depending on your league, may get cut, may be available via trade and auto new leagues. I think all of these guys are potential trade targets. And all of them are guys who are underperforming for the year. They're not as exciting as you'd hope they'd be. Their stats aren't where you would want them to be. But we believe in them. And we think that they they are all players who you should be uh, excited about adding to your roster if you can. So what we're going to try to do is go through a pitcher, an infielder, an outfielder each. And we're going to start with the pitchers. And we're going to start with Pete. He's going to let him introduce himself and kick off our pitchers with a guy who, those of you who have been listening to the show, you won't be surprised who his buy low starting pitcher is.
2: All right, guys, sorry for the weird way we're recording this time. It's weird not having Chad here, just talking to myself in a room. But as Chad alluded to, I'm sure we're talking about three players who are ideal buy low candidates in your long-term leagues. And the first player I wanted to talk about, I'm going to go with my pitcher first, really shouldn't surprise anybody, and that's Tanner Houck. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you're probably rolling your eyes right now, but we really haven't dove into Houck too much. We've brought him up, and by we, I mean me, I've brought him up a lot, but it's time to take a look at what he's doing because I think he's a buy-low candidate, and I think he's a buy-low because of the nonsense narrative that's been following him around. And so I'll talk about that as, as we get into it. But for now, let's start with the basics on, on Tanner Houck so far this season. In 2021, he's thrown 34 and two-thirds innings pitch, striking out 46 batters with just a 1.15 whip. That is through seven starts. He's made two relief appearances, and he's got a 3.12 ERA. After last season, seeing him build on the success he had, it's pretty exciting to see him doing that. You may have noticed that in every after every time he pitches, he gets... Sent back down to AAA, and for some reason, people continue to get like flustered with this, thinking that like the Red Sox aren't committed to him being in the rotation, or that that's not the case at all. Unfortunately, it is kind of shady what the Red Sox are doing, and not shady in the in in that it's like cheating or anything like that. Which I guess with the Red Sox and a few other organizations, you have to clarify, but it's just manipulating the the roster. Basically, they're able to send him down and get an extra roster spot. This was written about, actually today in The Athletic in an article by Chad Jennings, where he basically talks about how like, how much money Hauk is missing out on because the Red Sox, after every start, technically send him down. He stays with the team. There's pictures of him with the Red Sox after being sent down because they know they're going to call him back up to start in four more games, but they do that so they get the extra roster spot, be it an extra arm in the bullpen or an extra bat on the bench, and it has cost Hauk quite a bit of money. He makes the big league minimum which according to Chad Jennings is roughly $3,100 every day he's in the majors. That's a nice life. But when he's in the minors, he makes closer to $500 a day. So those days where he's quote unquote sent down, he's missing out on a lot of money. Again, I don't want to steal any thunder from this this article by Chad Jennings again on The Athletic titled Tanner Houck's spot in the Red Sox rotation doesn't always come with spot on Red Sox roster and it's costing him. I suggest you check that out if that interests you. But anyway, the point is he is in the rotation for the rest of the season, uh, and he's going to be there. So how could he possibly be a buy low if that's the case? Well, first of all, if if someone in your league believes that the constant sending down is a sign that he, they don't have faith in him, well, then there you go. I mean, that's that's definitely, I'd swoop in and take that because that owner doesn't understand what's going on there with the roster manipulation by the Red Sox. But there, there has been this notion that Tanner Howe can't get through the lineup a third time that he doesn't have a deep enough arsenal or he doesn't have the stamina or whatever it might be. So before we we talk about that, let's talk about actually how good he has been. So he returned to the big league club on July 16th. And since then, he is fourth in baseball among pitchers with a minimum 20 20 innings pitched in strikeouts per nine with a 13.08 mark. And that immediately sticks out to me because I play in a lot of strikeouts per nine leagues. The walks per nine in that time frame is just 2.11. That's a huge improvement for Tanner Houck. There's really two things that he's improved drastically this season. That's the control with the walks here and the velocity, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But last season, that was at 4.8 walks per night, and now it's at 2.11 that's over a walk per nine better than the league average this season of 3.37. So he's not only improved the control issues, but he's been better than league average since returning to the major leagues in terms of at least cutting down on the walks. So I mentioned there's this narrative that in my opinion is unjustly founded, that is a reason why you should be able to buy low if people are are buying in on this storyline. And that's that he can't go through an order a third time. So there's a few reasons why that's, that's nonsense. Let's just first start off with the simple fact that it's not easy to face any lineup a, th- a third time through. The league's batting average against pitchers a first time through the order is 236. That's the league average for hitters in their first plate appearance against a starting pitcher. The second time through, that goes up to 252. The third time through, it goes up again to 260. So it's, it's not an easy thing to do to begin with. Not that that's an excuse for how, but let's actually look at his individual case. Well, the first time through so far this year, opponents are just hitting 200 with only two walks in 63 plate appearances against Tanner Houck. Second time through the order, opponents are hitting 264, but that's with a 389 BABIP and a 631 OPS. Feels lucky and insignificant. It's just 58 plate appearances, but again, that's that's what we're working with here. The third time through the order, so this is when Tanner Houck is supposed to be awful and, and a reliever one day, blah, 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 blah. It's just eight plate appearances. Eight plate appearances is what this narrative is being driven by. Short, sure, in those eight appearances, there are no walks, so they're all at-bats, and they're five for eight with a home run and just one strikeout. Okay? Let's first look at the names of those players. Here are the, the names that took up those eight plate appearances. Brandon Lau, Wander Franco, Nelson Cruz, Tim Anderson, Trey Mancini, Cedric Mullins, Anthony Santander, and Ryan Mountcastle. That's a, <laughs> that's a pretty good group of eight players there. That's, that's who has this five for eight mark against Tanner Houck. Brandon Lau, it was an up-the-middle ground ball just under the glove of a shifted Devers. Wander Franco, he got him good. He took him for, for 400 feet for a home run. That was after an 11-pitch at-bat battle. After that, Houck was clearly tired. That's when Nelson Cruz got him for a double down the left field line. To find Tanner Houck facing a lineup the third time through again, you have to go all the way back to April 18th. So that, that start against the Rays, that was just a couple of weeks ago. On April 18th, he got one, he got one chance to face a batter the third time through. It was the leadoff man, obviously Tim Anderson against the White Sox. Tim Anderson hit a ground ball up the middle that ricocheted off of Tanner Houck and went into right field for a single. So it's a ground ball that hit the pitcher and went off into right field. It was hit hard. Don't get me wrong. But again, we're basing this on eight plate appearances. So I want to see what were these eight plate appearances. So far, we have a ball just under the glove of a shift to Devers. We have the number one prospect in baseball having 11-pitch at bat and hitting a home run. We have Nelson Cruz, who's just flat-out good, getting a double. Now we have one of the best hitters in baseball, Tim Anderson, getting a single that goes off of the pitcher. That's four of the hits. The fifth hit is Anthony Santander. And it was Houck's first outing of the year, so we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the year, where he hit a hard ground ball right at Bogarts, who gloved it, it fell out of the glove, and Santander was safe at first base. So, and, and they did end up giving Santander a hit on that, it was a hard hit ball, but it went right to Bogarts, he gloved it, just fell out of the glove, didn't have enough time to throw him out. Those are the five hits, total. The five individual situations where Houck got hit the third time through the order. The other three plate appearances, because remember there were eight, were Cedric Mullins, who grounded out, Trey Mancini, who grounded out, and Ryan Mountcastle, who struck out. So, like, I'm not trying to nitpick every single little hit, even though that's clearly what I just did. But if we're going to base a narrative that Hell can't go through the order a third time on eight plate appearances, then why aren't we doing the same thing with the seven plate appearances last year? Where last year, opponents faced him for a third time for actually nine plate appearances. I'm sorry, not seven. There were two walks, so there were seven at-bats, and opposing batters went 0 for 7. So if we're going to make a mountain out of eight plate appearances, then why can't we make one out of seven last year? And if you want to say, well, what have you done for me lately? And then that still comes down to five for 15, which is still not what you want the third time through, but then that's just 15 at-bats. Like, At what point is this a non-story? There's no way to argue that he is definitively good, just as good, or even okay the third time through the order. But the fact that the team has put baby gloves on him because of one single bad outing against the Rays the third time through is not enough for me to say he can't do it. And I think that's a narrative that's being driven, and it's definitely a reason why I'd be interested in buying on him. There's a great article published on MLB.com by David Adler earlier this month that compared Sale to Hauk. Now, I'm not going to sit here as a Red Sox fan and tell you that Tanner Hauk is going to be Chris Sale. I think the article would raise some eyebrows if you read it. I think you'd be more interested in Tanner Hauk if you read it. But what I can tell you is he made a particularly great point that counters the quote, Hauk really only throws two pitches consistently, so he can't go through the order a third time. Nonsense narrative. And it was a simple point. He he took Sale's usage from 2018 and 2019 seasons and compared it to Hauk's pitch usage this year. Sale from 2018 to 2019 was 37% four-seam fastball, 37% sliders. Tanner Hauk? 38% 38% four-seam fastball, 38% sliders. Now, it should be noted that Sale also threw a sinker and a changeup, whereas Houck has just thrown a sinker, and pretty consistently. And, and those pitches, though not Sale's best, definitely helped keep hitters off balance a third time through the order, and we're, we're better at this point than Houck's sinker has been, although it certainly looked better. But are we really going to bet against Houck now just because of these eight plate appearances, because of this narrative that's being driven? It's nonsense. He's a 25 year old first round pick with a career 2.26 ERA, 1.07 WHIP, 67 strikeouts through 51 and two thirds innings pitched. He's a guy who, in his second season in the big leagues, has improved his fastball velocity by two ticks to 94 and miles an hour, and he has also cut his walk rate from, as we talked about earlier, though the walks per nine, but his walk rate last year was 14.3 percent. It's now 4.9 percent this season. That's two huge strides. That I don't think are being talked about enough. Velocity and control. Obviously, it's harder to get professional hitters out a third time they're seeing you. But if that's enough for someone in your league to think that like how can't hack it or that he's some future reliever or something stupid like that, then pounce. Maybe they aren't as high on him because he wasn't some top prospect, but really he was a top prospect. He was a first round pick. His value got shot because if you, if you go to Pitcher List, there's a great article. I've referenced it before by Jordan White, and it's it's dated now. You know, the the information, the data is obviously more up-to-date if you look at Savant and so on and so forth. This was an article that came out in the offseason. It was titled, Tanner Houck is on the Rise. And, he, and and Jordan talks about how the Red Sox tried to get Tanner Houck to abandon his sinker at the beginning of, of 2018. And that cost him. That hurt his prospect value, it... it hurt how he was viewed in the eyes of scouts and definitely how he was viewed in dynasty leagues. And he was someone who was on nobody's radar. So to see him performing so well, it can be a little bit like, ah, do I trust this? This guy kind of came out of nowhere. But now that he's gone back to the sinker, his arsenal's deepening. And maybe, maybe that's why the sinker is a little bit behind the slider and the four seam fastball, because he had to abandon it for a season, but he's back to being the guy he was who dominated in college and got taken as a first round pick in the draft. He's got the sinker back. It's his third option. He's not throwing it enough. It hasn't been quite as effective, obviously, as the slider and 4 but he doesn't need it to be. He just needs to keep throwing it, get a feel for it. If Hulk makes all of his scheduled starts the rest of the way, here's who he's going to be facing this season. versus the Twins at Cleveland. At home versus Cleveland. Home against the Rays and then at the White Sox. That could be tough. And then home against Baltimore. Home against the Mets. Home against Baltimore. Home against the Nationals. So he's a guy I'd be targeting not only for the future, but even this year. His his spot in the rotation is safe. He's got what looks like lined up to be a bunch of easy offenses, except for the Rays and the White Sox, to go. And with the Red Sox bullpen looking awful and burnt out, look for Cora to really see if Huck can go a third time through the order. Yes, against the Yankees, he they didn't let him go a third time through the order, and then they blew the game. But he was going to go out there to face the top of the Yankees lineup. It wasn't until the Red Sox took the lead did Cora start warming up Garrett Whitlock, who ended up going out there and and blowing the game. But if the Red Sox didn't take the lead, Hauk was going to go back out there for a third time through. So don't think the Red Sox aren't going to do it. They've been timid to do it, but they're going to need him to. And so Tanner Hauk is definitely a guy I would target.
1: Now, my by-low starting pitcher is not quite as young... Maybe not quite as exciting. Some might call him very boring, but he's been really, really good lately. Marco Gonzalez came into the year as a guy who I was really high on. I think you go back and look at what he'd done over the last couple of years, and he had put up, not necessarily great numbers, but very good numbers. He had a 4.00 ERA in 2018, 3.99 in 2019, brought that down to a 3.10 in 2020. Over that full stretch, a 3.85 ERA, 3.75 FIP, a little bit higher on the XFIP, in large part because he keeps his home run per fly ball rate a little bit down. It's been sort of at, it's at 10 or was at 10% last year. It was below that the two years before that. But really, this is a guy who doesn't strike out a ton of guys, does manage to control the walks, keeps the keeps the ball in the zone and avoids walking too many guys. And as a result of having sort of a low strikeout and low walk counts, also goes deep into games, which means it gets you a lot of innings over the course of a season. He had 203 innings in 2019, uh, had 69 and two thirds innings last year in the shortened season. This year is not going as well. We'll get to that in a minute. In leagues with wins or leagues with quality starts, particularly the quality starts, he just churns them out. He's a really, really solid bet to go six, seven innings every time out. At least he was, like I said, last year. This year, though, man, has it been a different story for Marco, and it has been, it hasn't been fun. <laughs> and uh, to be honest, I, in a couple of leagues where I had him, I ended up having to let him go. He's got a 4.10 ERA, not actually a huge jump when you think about him being at 4.00 and 3.99 in 2018, 2019, his last two full seasons, but 5.04 FIP, 4.91 X FIP, those are the numbers that are concerning. And when you look at some of the underlying numbers, he's got a walk rate up at 7.7%. Last year, it was at 2.5%. Even in 2019, it was at 6.5%. His home run per fly ball rate this year of 14.4% is the highest it's been since he came over to Seattle. Uh, He was at 11.3, 9.3, 9.6 the three years leading into this. So some real issues with stuff that he normally controls pretty well. And when you sort of dig in to try to figure out like, okay, what's, what's been going on? What's been the problem for him? Part of it, The fly ball rate is up. Guys are getting under the ball on him a bit more. It's 44.8% this year after 41.1% last year, 38% the year before, and 30.1% the year before that. With that, the ground ball rate has come down. Well, that should result in improvement in BABIP, right? Balls in the air are easier to field than balls in the ground. His 269 BABIP this year is actually higher than it was last year at 263. Both of those seem like pretty low numbers. Seems like there might be some regression there. So, you know, a little bit of concern there, but I would have expected him to post improvement in his at The fact that he didn't with all those extra fly balls, a little bit surprising, but it really is those walks and those strikeouts. The strikeouts are down to 19.7%. You know, he was at 23.1% last year. If we include the two years before that, he was at 19.5%, which looks a little bit more the same, but 7.7% walks he'd been at 5.2% over the previous 3 years just 2.5% last year and, and the result of that is he's working with a lot more base runners and and so when he gives up a lot of balls in play which he does those are coming back to hurt him in a much much more problematic manner uh, not only is he giving up more home runs but when you walk more guys those home runs hurt you a lot more they matter a lot more you can get away with giving up a few extra home runs if, if you keep base runners off base He wasn't doing that this year. On the season, his fastball velocity looks fine. Uh, It was 88.9 in 2019, 88.2 last year, 88.4 this year. Down a little bit from where it was in 2019, but up a little bit from last year. Not something I was super concerned about with him. The biggest issue, again, it's just those, those walks, which you really, really don't expect from him and if i if i look at his plate discipline numbers his zone percentages were 43%, 43.5%, 45.4% the last three years down to 41.5% this year his first strike rate 66.3, 65.7, 64.3% down to 61.6% this year his swinging strike rate is actually higher than it's been since he came to seattle at 9.6% But the called strike rate is much lower because he's not around the zone the way he was. He's not hitting his spots the way he was. And so his CSW is down. So he's he's gained ground in that swing strike rate and lost it in the called strike rate. And that control was really what set him apart and what made him so good. It just hasn't been there for him. However, if we go look at his numbers dating back to August 1st, big, big shift really big shift since August 1st. And now keep in mind is obviously, you know, small sample size caveat has to be put out there because we're talking about four starts and they are three of those four starts are against Texas, who is not a very good team. The other one is against the Yankees. He did pretty well against them as well, but over those four starts, strikeout rate up to 21.4%, the walk rate down to 4.1%. He has the home run per fly ball rate, down to 2.9%. That's probably not sustainable, but it certainly looks a lot better than it did before. He's got the average exit velocity down, he's got barrel rates down, hard hit rates are down, Everything is coming back to where it was previously. If we look at his pitch velocity, it's back up to 88.8. Not a huge jump, but again, a little bit more gain there. We were talking about those first strike rates. He was down to 61%. He's back up to 63.3%. His zone rate at 40%, still a little low for him, but he's getting much better results. He's walking fewer guys. He is around the zone more. And that's a really, really good sign given where he was previously and the struggles he was having earlier in the year. What do I expect from him going forward? He's not about to turn into you know, the next Jacob deGrom or anything like that. I do think that he can go back to being the kind of guy he's been over those last three years. Don't expect him to go back and turn into what he was in 2020. That was a short season. He was brilliant and it was super impressive. But I do think if you look at those numbers over the last three years, that 3.85 ERA Little over seven strikeouts per nine, under two walks per nine, keeps the home runs down, goes deep into games regularly. That's the kind of guy he can be, especially in leagues where innings matter. So quality starts leagues, auto new head-to-head leagues where innings per start matters a lot. His value, I think, is is never going to be lower, and there's a really good opportunity to buy. And so I'm looking to reacquire. Marco Gonzalez, where I can, I think if he keeps up this run over the next you know five six starts that he'll have left this year, what he's been doing over the last four starts, we'll see. If he doesn't, then he's a cut, and you don't have to keep him, and you don't have to worry about it. If he does maintain that, though, he's gonna his value is gonna go up. He's gonna be much harder to obtain, and he's gonna be the kind of guy he'll he'll turn into one of these. Oh, everybody thinks he's you know the sleeper for next year. I think this is the time to buy in and find out. The nice thing is, I think the cost is low enough. He's likely a free agent in some of your leagues. Where he's not a free agent, you can probably trade for him pretty inexpensively. And because the cost is low, if he stumbles over the next couple weeks and you decide, forget it, this isn't worth it, you'll move on. And that's okay. Looking at his schedule the rest of the way, the Mariners have Oakland, Kansas City, Houston, Arizona, Houston. Arizona, Boston, Kansas City, Oakland, the Angels, and Oakland. Those Houston and Boston series are a little concerning. Oakland may be a little bit concerning. Some opportunities for some nice, easy starts against Arizona and uh, Kansas City. The nice thing is, if he has some of those rougher starts, if he has to face a Houston, if he has to face a Boston, the big advantage you've got is you just want to see what he can do. You're not buying him now to try to win your season. You're not buying him now to try to put you over the top. You're getting in now to see can he keep this together? Can he continue to perform? And so you sort of want to see him get challenged by some of those tough teams. His first start will be Monday night against Oakland at Oakland. That'll be a fun challenge for him. I'm really interested to see what he can do. I'm hopeful that he's going to pitch well. Uh, but I think now is the time to get back onto the Marco Gonzalez train. So let's leave the mound and head to the outfield. And In the outfield, Pete continuing to, to hammer his Red Sox. He's got another Red Sox for you. So let's hear who Pete is telling you to look at as a buy low in the outfield. Man, I am
2: going to come across as such a homer in this episode because my pitcher pick was Tanner Houck which I'm sure surprised nobody but my pick for my outfielder that I think you should buy in on buy low on going into next season and maybe even to finish the year is another Red Sox Alex Verdugo now Verdugo's surface stats this year he's batting 279 he's got 44 RBI 70 runs five stolen bases he's batting 279 like I said I mean that's that's around i that's lower than what we expected i mean i think most people drafted alex verdugo thinking batting average safe batting average even if the the power some of the stuff that he flashed last year ends up not being legit he's going to give us a strong batting average it has been on the rise it was certainly lower earlier in the year but 279 i think we expected better and i think all of those stats those surface stats would lead people to think eh maybe last year was a was a little bit fluky from verdugo i'm here to tell you that's that's really not the case I mean, look, he was taken with ADP 127. So, if if you used a you know, 12th, 10th round pick on him, you're you're having none of what I'm saying right now. You're disappointed in what he's given you, and I understand that. But if you look a little bit under the surface, I I think you're going to like what you see from Verdugo, and you're going to think maybe that 2020 breakout was a little bit more legit. You're going to think maybe he's actually better than he was in 2020. And so next year, when he's going, you know, past pick 180 i think his adp is going to drop that far keep him in mind so here are a few examples his average exit velocity in 2020 was 87 miles an hour this year it's up to 90.1 that's a pretty big jump his strikeout rate is startlingly improved not that he was ever a guy that struck out a lot that's not part of his game but it was 20.4 percent last year that's down to 14.8 this year in 2021 His walk rate in 2020 was 7.7. That's up to nine in 2021. So again, you might think like some of those aren't that big of a difference, particularly the walk rate. But remember how we viewed him going into the drafts after last season. Again, his ADP was 127. And think about how you view him now. And he's actually been better. His expected batting average is almost 50 points higher this year. It was two thirty eight in twenty twenty. It's two eighty two this year. He's barreling the ball. He's hitting off speed pitches much better. He's got a two ninety six expected batting average against against off speed pitches. Last year that was at two hundred. Most significantly, though, I think is that he's raised his launch angle almost a full two degrees from five point nine to seven point five. That's still not a high launch angle. And it hasn't, it hasn't netted the results that we want in terms of ground balls just yet. I mean, he's at 51.3% this year. That's a high ground ball rate. It was It's improved from last year where it was at 52.2. But it does show that Verdugo is trying to lift the ball more. It, that, to me, makes him a more interesting buy, especially in long-term leagues. He's going to continue to play in a great lineup for the foreseeable future. He's still just 25. I think a lot of people have fatigue on Alex Verdugo. I mean, back when the Dodgers in 2018 were trading for Manny Machado, the piece that Baltimore was trying to get back was Alex Verdugo. They ended up with you, Sneel Diaz. I mean, we've been hearing about Alex Verdugo for a long time, considering he's still just 25 years old. He has top prospect pedigree, and he looks like he's in the middle of transforming himself from an extreme ground ball hitter to a guy who lifts the ball more. Now, you may be thinking, like, that's nonsense. Like you just told me his ground ball rate was 51% this year. And the line drives are actually down from last year. But when you look at the fly ball rate, it's at a career high, 21.5%. It was 15.9% last season. That's a significant shift, lifting the ball more, even though it has yet to really net the results we want to see on the surface. I mean, like I said, his surface stats are down. And at the end of the day, that's what counts in fantasy this kind of change is, is exciting. It is hard for lefties to hit for power at Fenway to begin with. So he has that working against him. And he does go to the opposite field quite a bit. But one can imagine if he's going to start lifting the ball more and trying to hit for power that going the opposite way is going to kind of go down, he's going to be less trying to just put the ball in play and instead hit for power. But I still think that's a change that fantasy owners would be welcome to. If Alex Verdugo said, you know what, I'm going to maybe bat for a little bit less of an average, but really start hitting for more power. He's going to turn 26 next season. And a guy, I, I had a conversation on Twitter. I should have looked up the handle with the person it was with. And they asked comparing like Verdugo to, to Christian Yelich. Now, you know, my last choice, I was comparing Tanner Houck to Chris Sale. Now here I go comparing Alex Verdugo to Christian Yelich. I'm not trying to say that these players are going to become those players. But Verdugo and Yelich, they, they kind of profile similarly, at, at least when Yelich was this age. So in Yelich's age 26 season, okay, again, think about who he was. He was a lefty contact hitter with good speed. He didn't strike out, but he had a low launch angle. He had too many ground balls. Does that sound familiar? During his age 26 season, Christian Yelich had a 90.6 average exit velocity. Verdugo's is 90.1. Yelich had a 4.7 degree launch angle. Verdugo's is much better at 7.5, but like we said, that hasn't really translated to Less ground balls, although it has translated to more fly balls. It's really just come at the expense of the line drives. To go back to the comparison, though, Jelic had a 19.7k rate, which Verdugo's 14.8 is obviously better, but the point is these were guys who didn't strike out a lot. Jelic had a 45.9 hard hit percentage. Verdugo's is 42.8. He does impact the ball. Jelic had a 7% barrel rate. Verdugo's is 6.8. Jelic had a 55.6 ground ball percentage. Verdugo's is 51.3. Two years later, after posting those numbers, Christian Yelich won the MVP. I'm not saying, again, Verdugo is going to follow that same path, and no one should be predicting that, you know, or expecting Alex Verdugo becomes Christian Yelich. But if someone in your league is disappointed in Verdugo this year, and I'm willing to bet there's someone in every league that is pretty disappointed in Alex Verdugo this year, then you should be the one who remembers that he's just 25 years old and there are players with similar profiles at that age who went on to do some awesome stuff. Verdugo's a guy who provides a lot of energy to the Red Sox. He's going to continue to bat towards the top of the order. I know lately he's been batting a little bit lower in the lineup, particularly against lefties. Maybe that sticks if Jaron Duran really breaks out, but he profiles as a top-of-the-order type of guy, an on-base guy, going to put the ball in play. And if he starts hitting for power, this profile is super, super interesting. And honestly, I don't know... Even if he doesn't have some monster breakout, I don't know if Verdugo's value is ever going to be lower than it is this season because of how much of a down year he has had in comparison to his expectations going into the year. So now is the time to pounce if you need a young outfielder. Don't forget, it's not all about the prospects. There are plenty of players at the major league level who are very young, in Verdugo's case, 25 years old, who could provide tons of long-term value and be purchased pretty cheap.
1: And I completely agree with Pete on Verdugo. This guy is way too talented to not perform. I think his, his numbers this year are dragged down more than they should be. His bat pip is low. He should be a guy who runs higher bat pips. I think uh, I would expect him to perform better next year. And I, I think you're you're seeing that a bit in his August performance as he starts to turn things around. We'll have to see if he can keep it up. Who knows if he can, but I I am certainly interested in him as a long-term piece. The outfielder that I want to talk to you about is a former infielder who I think is going to be an outfielder long-term at this point. That's Lourdes Gurriel Jr. He came in as a second baseman. He used to play some second base. That is... In his past, I think he is a full-time outfielder now, and that does impact his value a little bit. He hasn't really played second base since 2019. He's mostly played in left field. He played a little bit of first base this year, enough that he's going to have first base eligibility in auto new leagues. And so that might be something that that piques your interest a little bit. But more importantly, the bigger thing with Gurriel is his overall line on the year is going to be very, very disappointing to managers who've got him on their roster. He's got a 312 WOBA. His ex WOBA doesn't even suggest that there's much more to that. It's only 299. That's a 95 WRC plus that puts him at 5% below average offensively after being 35% above average last year and 24% above average the year before that. He's actually striking out a bit less this year. His walk rate is also down where he is Falling hard is the home run for fly ball rate is way down for him. It was at 20.2 and 20.4% the last two years. It's down to 13.3% this year. That is backed up by decreases in his average exit velocity, in his barrel rate, in his hard hit rate. And then that's in a year where the ball's traveling harder and people are seeing their average exit velocities up. However, his max exit velocity, which was 109.5 last year, 109.6 the year before that, 109.5 again this year. So he still has that power. He is still capable of tapping into that. And I suspect he will do that more often moving forward. And we're already starting to see it a bit. If you take a look at his numbers since April 28th, just four weeks into the season, he has a 114 WRC+. Plus. That is a lot better than than what he's got in the year, even if it's not as good as he's done in the past, but a whole lot better than what it looks like when you look at his season long line. And I start to look at that and see a guy who is way too talented to not perform like I said, he is still showing that max exit velocity. He's actually controlling strikeouts better this year than he has in the past. That walk rate's down on the year, but since the All-Star break, his walk rate is back up to 7.7%, which is a really, really good sign from him. And I I think that he's going to be the guy that we thought he would be coming into the season, or at least close to it, right? And I think for a lot of people, they looked at his, you know, 372 WOBA last year with a 351 BAPIP, and like, you weren't really banking on that continuing. But Putting up something around a 110 WRC plus instead of a 95 certainly doesn't seem like something that, that's hard to imagine moving forward. That's really what I expect from him. I think that he'll continue to hit the ball hard. He'll continue to put up good numbers as he has over the last you know five, six weeks in particular. I think that his potential to be just an absolute stud in the outfield for you is really high, particularly in leagues where you don't need stolen bases from your outfielders. He's not a big stolen base threat. He has 10 total over the last three years, 11 total in his career, and that number's been going down almost every year. I don't think there's a good chance he steals nothing next year, but he posts decent on-base percentages. He has good power. He's hitting in a very, very good lineup where he is either going to earn more plate appearances towards the top of the lineup in which case, he will have a lot of opportunities to score runs. Or he's going to continue to hit a little lower in the lineup. In which case, he's going to have a lot of opportunities to drive in runs. This year, he's mostly in the 6th or 7th spot. But I think as he starts to perform better again, he'll move back up and have more of an opportunity to hit 5th and 6th. And hitting 5th and 6th behind some of the guys will be in front of him. Behind Bichette, Vlad Jr. Like That's a pretty good place to be. And so I'm very intrigued by what he brings to the table, what his skill set is, what he is capable of. He's still only 27 years old. He'll be 28 just after the season ends. It's not like he's aged out of being able to perform. And so when I look at what, what he's doing this year, I think I expect a higher bat from him going forward. I expect a higher home run per fly ball rate going forward. I, and I think if those two things fall into place, the rest of the numbers will follow. Like I said. Since, you know, June, July, they already are. If you look at him sort of month by month, he had a really atrocious March and April. He did not do a whole lot better in May. 53 WRC plus in March and April, 79 in May, 131 in June, down to an 86 in July, 149 so far through August. Second half is a 118 WRC plus. Like he's already shown what he's capable of and what he can what he can do when he turns things around. I'm I'm really, really intrigued. I think there's a ton of potential for him to be a game changer in your outfield. And if you're looking at a team where you could use some help now, because I think he can help now. And he's on he's with a manager who is frustrated who is tired of waiting for him to to perform, who maybe doesn't believe in what he's seen in August, now is the time to get in on him. And I would jump at that opportunity. So let's turn our attention now to the infield. We'll go to Pete again first, and Pete is going to leave Boston. He's going to leave the AL East, and he's going to go to a young guy in the AL Central who, as a Cleveland fan, uh, this guy scares me. He's one of the guys that I think is going to be a real problem for a long time to come.
2: Everyone will be relieved to know that my final choice, my infielder, that I think you should buy low on right now in your long-term leagues is not a Red Sox. You heard that correctly. It is not a Red Sox. Instead, it's a category of player that I really like to target in my long-term leagues. And that's a prospect who had a lot of hype and disappointed and then either got sent back down or got hurt. In this case, it was an injury. Now, before I say the player, that's a tactic that doesn't always work out, right? I mean, buying low doesn't always work out. Like, if I tried that with Gavin Lux... It didn't work out. Gavin Lux continued to be bad after his lackluster start to his Major League career. With Alex Bregman, it worked out great. So it, it's, it's not a, obviously, it's not a foolproof strategy, but I think giving prospects a second chance, particularly after their very first taste of Major League experience, is a good move. And that's why finally I can get to it. I'm going with Alex Kirillov as the infielder, first base eligibility, but also outfield that I think you should buy low on right now in your long-term leagues. His numbers don't jump off the page at you so far this year. And actually this is it because he had wrist surgery, like I said, but through 215 at bats, he had eight homers, a 251 average, 23 runs, 34 RBI. He did steal a base. He's not much of a base stealer though. Through many, many minor league plate appearances, he had like 11 steals. So, you know, speed is not something you're going to get from him but he does have a lot of raw power. I think he's going to grow into that power from the left side and be a pretty solid player for his major league career. And even though the surface numbers were kind of disappointing, he's definitely still a guy who I want to target. He's a career 869 OPS and 318 batting average hitter through over 1,200 minor league plate appearances. And that's not breaking news. Everybody knows that Alex Kirilov was a top prospect and that he performed well in the minor leagues. He was a first-round pick out of high school, and many owners were stashing him late in drafts at the start of the year, hoping that he was going to make the opening day roster. He didn't. He had a brutal spring where he went four for 31. But then two weeks into the season, he got called up. And he didn't really look back. He had a couple of injuries. I think he he might have got sent back down for a little bit. But I mean, bottom line is we ended up with 231 plate appearances this season. He did spend a few weeks of his limited time this season hurt. Um, he's playing... He, Basically, he he hurt his wrist, and he tried to play through it for two weeks. They shut him down. They weren't sure if he was going to be able to come back or get surgery. Eventually, it was decided that he needed surgery. It's not a big deal for next year. He will be back in plenty of time. The timeline for that particular wrist surgery apparently is eight weeks, which obviously gives him more than enough time to get his normal ramp up and be ready to go at the start of next season. I know wrist surgeries and injuries are obviously very concerning in the fantasy baseball world, but Kirilov's young enough, he has enough time this offseason to get himself back up, assuming he you know, has no complications or anything like that, that it's, it's not really a concern for me until I hear about it again. He's otherwise been great. Like The underlying numbers would actually suggest that he's been pretty great. Now, keep in mind, he was, a, first of all, the hype of a top prospect. He was dealing with an injury. They were moving him all around the field, first base, left field, right field. It was a team that was disappointing everybody. Remember, the Twins were in the playoffs last year. They actually called Kirloff up for the playoffs last year, if you remember. And they were disappointing. And so that's a lot of pressure for a top prospect. And that may help explain his lackluster surface numbers, but he was still good. And I'm sure the fact that he is on the Twins definitely didn't help his numbers, but his 365 expected Woba, that leads all rookies this season. The expected numbers overall for Kirloff are much more forgiving of his poor surface stats as he also led all rookies in expected batting average with a 288 batting average and expected slugging by a country mile. Kirilov's expected slugging percentage was 532. The closest is Eric Haas at 479. All those numbers, by the way, courtesy of Fangraphs. I know somehow Baseball Savant comes out with like a slightly different expected batting average and a slightly different this, that, the other thing. It was all from Fangraphs. But regardless, Kirilov was your rookie leader in those major categories for hitters. Those underlying numbers that we should be looking at as opposed to just the surface stuff. He's still just 23. He's a top prospect, great underlying numbers, multi-position eligibility, and should be fully healthy to start the 2022 season. As a quick recap, you should be in on him. If you can acquire him at a discount in your long-term leagues, I don't think you'd regret it. I imagine the Twins will look to replace Nelson Cruz's presence with Kirloff in the heart of the order. I do think he'll have a, a pretty advantageous spot in the lineup next season, and he could be in for an absolutely massive campaign in 2022 and beyond. Again, we're, we're looking long-term. So for Dugo and Kirilov, that does it for my picks. Go get him. There's not much more to say. I mean, we're basing this on a top prospect that everybody knew about, and he only had 231 plate appearances. But to me, he fits the type of player that falls off of people's radars, maybe becomes a little bit cheaper because he didn't, You know, get called up and immediately start hitting homers. So go get him in your leagues, stash him, and you're going to have an infielder and outfielder for a long time that I think is going to provide a lot of pop, a decent batting average, and be a pretty high-end player in your fantasy leagues.
1: I have a hard time arguing with, with Karoloff as a buy low. I think the fact that he did struggle and then he got hurt, the numbers this year aren't very good, don't read too much into it. You know, 231 plate appearances this year is enough for him to no longer be a rookie. It is not enough to write him off. To be perfectly honest, I'm just sort of, this is rookie, rookie issues. He's struggling to adjust. I think he'll be fine long term. The infielder that I want to talk about is a guy who's a little bit older than that. He's not a rookie. Jeff McNeil is 29 years old. He'll be 30 very close to the beginning of next season. He has really had an ugly, ugly year He'd been so good and so consistent coming into this year. If you look at his last three years, his on-base percentages last three years, 381, 384, 383. His WOBAs, 368, 384, 360. The big difference in 2019 was his home run per fly ball rate jumped to 15.4%. It it had only been 3.8% the year before that. It was only 7.7% the year after that. Not obviously something I would expect going forward, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute he is a much, much better hitter than he has shown overall this year. His strikeout rate is only 14.2% this year. That's still the highest of his career. His 7.6% walk rate is a lot lower than it was last year, although not too far off where it was previously for his career. But the big la- big thing lacking here is BAPIP. He's a guy who, coming into this season, had a career 342 BAPIP, He had never been below 335. This year, he's at 275. That's a pretty big drop-off. Now, when I look at his numbers, his average exit velocity is up this year. His max exit velocity is up this year. His launch angle is up a little bit. It was 11.5 last year, 12.6 this year, 13.6 for his career. So nothing there that's surprising or concerning. His barrel rate, highest of his career at 5%. His hard hit rate, tied for the highest of his career at 36%. His ex-slugging is higher than his slugging. His ex-woba is higher than his woba, neither by a ton. Man, I just feel like this is a guy who, like I said, 342 BAPIP coming into the season. I think that 275 is just super, super low for him. I think 1,000 plate appearances is not enough to say that he's a true talent. 342 Babip guy, but I think it's way more likely that he's a 330, 320 even, than a 275. The question with him right now for this year, and I think the thing that you can capitalize on if you're trying to buy him, is playing time. As someone who's got McNeil in a number of places, he is super frustrating because the Mets have a lot of talent and they're trying to figure out what to do, and he hasn't been that good, and so he's not playing every day. And so you're stuck sort of figuring out where he fits in and when he's going to be in. And that's not as that's not as fun to deal with. And that's only going to get worse with Javi Baez coming back off the IL. But when I look at his numbers dating back into July, let's say, you know, since basically the 4th of July, let's look at just since July 6th. A little bit of an arbitrary endpoint. He took a day off on the 6th, came back on the 7th. Since then he has a 101 WRC plus. Still a low Bapip, I think, for him at 291, but a much better overall line than than what we've seen from him on the season. Like I said, that one oh one WRC plus, he's only been at ninety-three for the season. He went through a really, really hot stretch from for about a month. If you look from July seventh to August sixth. That month, he had a 159 WRC+. plus. He's obviously fallen off since then, or else the numbers since then wouldn't be where they are. The numbers since then, though, that August 7th to August 21st run where he where he fell off quite a bit, he has a 167 Bapit. So I don't know. I, I look at him as a guy who he, he's been hot and cold before in the past. If you look at his 2020 season, he had that really, really rough start and then a really, really great finish. Um, you go month by month, he had a 112 WRC plus in July, which was a very short month. Then August, it was 83. In September, October, it was 171 and 87 for this first half, 156 for a second half. Again, short season last year. We're only talking about, you know, 30 games per half. So what that says to me though is he is more than capable of running off these insane stretches of a month at a time. And I think he'll continue to do that on and off. And I think that you'll continue to see him be more consistently successful as well. You know, if you go back to 2019, he never had a month lower than a 107 WRC plus. He did have those spikes at 167, 162, 158, but he was never bad. He was never hurting you in 2019. In 2018, when I go back and look at those month-by-month splits, he only had a couple of months in 2018 but 151 WRC plus 135 WRC plus you look at what he what he's done and for the most part he's been very consistent until last year he had that one weird month and this year he's been he's been injured on and off and he's been struggling at times. I personally think he is way too talented a hitter and I think it shows when you look at some of his numbers this year. The fact that his walk rate is above his career line, the fact that his strikeout rate has even as even at a, a career high strikeout rate, the fact that his strikeout rate is only 14.2%, the fact that he's putting up career highs or near career highs in his exit velocities and hard hit rates and barrel rate. Like There is a very, very talented bat in here. And I think it's way, way too early to give up on him. It'll be interesting to see what the Mets do this offseason. If you've been following their owner on Twitter, he is very frustrated, clearly. Uh, And so I suspect there will be changes. Maybe they extend Baez. Maybe they go out and get some other free agents. Who knows what that means for McNeil or others. Maybe they make some trades. But... I think Jeff McNeil is a guy who is going to bring you middle infield eligibility. He's going to give you a high average despite what he's done this year, a high on base percentage despite what he's done this year. He is going to hit you not a ton of home runs, but I do think double digits, 10 to 15 home runs. He's not going to steal you a ton of bases, and so in your traditional 5 by 5 leagues, there's, there's a little bit more to be worried about, but I think that's a good Mets lineup. I think he's going to hit in a good spot in that Mets lineup moving forward, and I think that he's going to get on base. And I think that that's going to have a lot of value. Now, he is more valuable in points leagues, for sure. My auto new leagues, I'm way more interested in him in, in the point leagues than I am in a traditional five by five. I'm more interested in, him in on base leagues than I am in average leagues, although he puts up good numbers in both. You do have to contend with the fact that if he doesn't play regularly, if he doesn't get a good spot in the lineup, the runs and RBIs might not be real high. He is not, I don't think, going to return to the 23 home run power he showed in 2019, maybe he will, but I doubt it. I think it's more like a 15 home run type season in him, but we'll have to see. And we'll have to see what he can do the rest of this year. He could go off. And if he goes off, it was a little bit like what I talked about with Marco Gonzalez. If he goes off and just tears off a great month of September, people are going to look at his second half overall, and it's going to look really good. And they're going to look at his month of September and they're going to say, man, he closed really well. He was banged up before then. Look at what he's done since he's been healthy. And he's going to be a really popular buy low going into the offseason. And so the time to strike is now. Go get him when he's a not-popular by low, when his his manager is frustrated, when the performance on the season hasn't really caught up. Right now, he's in a cold streak, so this might be the perfect time to, to jump on him while, someone, while another manager has said, yeah, I enjoyed the hot streak, I was really excited about him, but now it's gotten ugly, take advantage. So, with that, thank you for joining our very unique and probably a little bit awkward episode of the Keeper Cup podcast. Really think there's some exciting names in here. I think if you're looking to plan for next year going out, buying low on Hauk and Gonzalez, on Verdugo and Guriel, on Kirilov and McNeil will serve you well. Hopefully they do. So again, thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe anywhere podcasts are subscribable. Leave us ratings and reviews. Follow us on Twitter at keep or cut. That's cut with a K. You can follow me at Chad Young. Follow Pete at Pete B Baseball. We would love to hear from you. If you got questions, let us know and we will talk to you next week.